0: This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. In this program, Dr. Craig debates Dr. Christopher DiCarlo on the question, Does God Matter? For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Thank you and good evening. It's good to be here tonight for this important debate on the question, Does God Matter? Now notice that we're not here tonight to debate the question, does God exist? But rather the even more fundamental question, does God matter? I'm persuaded that it matters enormously whether or not God exists. Those who shrug their shoulders and say, what difference does it make if God exists or not? Show merely that they haven't thought very deeply about this question. I think even atheist philosophers like Sartre and Camus who have thought deeply about this question Recognize that it makes an enormous difference whether or not God exists. And in my opening speech, I'm going to try to explain why. Man, writes Lauren Isley, is the cosmic orphan. He's the only creature in the universe who asks why. Other animals have instincts to guide them, but man has learned to ask questions. Who am I? He asks. Why am I here? Where am I going? Ever since the Enlightenment, when modern man threw off the shackles of religion, he's tried to answer those questions without reference to God. But the answers that came back were not exhilarating, but dark and terrible. You are the accidental byproduct of nature, the result of matter plus time plus chance. There is no reason for your existence. All you face is death. Modern man thought that once he had gotten rid of God, he had freed himself from all that repressed and stifled him. Instead, he discovered that in killing God, he had only succeeded in orphaning himself. As one atheist philosopher has put it, human life is mounted upon a subhuman pedestal and must shift for itself alone in the heart of a silent and mindless universe. If God does not exist, then both man and the universe are inevitably doomed to death. Man, like all biological organisms, must die. And the universe, too, faces a death of its own. Scientists tell us that the universe is expanding, and as it does so, everything in it grows further and further apart. As it expands, it grows colder and colder as its energy is used up. Eventually, all the stars will burn out and all matter will collapse into dead stars and black holes. There will be no light at all. There will be no life. There will be no heat. Only the corpses of dead stars and galaxies ever expanding into the endless darkness and the cold recesses of space, a universe in ruins. This is not science fiction. As unimaginable as it may be, this will happen. So not only is the life of each individual person doomed, the entire human race is destined to destruction. There is no escape. There is no hope. On atheism, then, there is no God and there is no immortality. And what is the consequence of this? As many atheist philosophers from Nietzsche to Russell to Sartre have recognized, it means that life itself is absurd. It means that the life we do have is without ultimate significance, value, or purpose. Let me say a word about each of these. First, there is no ultimate meaning to life. If each individual person passes out of existence when he dies, then what ultimate meaning can be given to his life? Does it really matter whether he ever really existed at all? Of course, his life may be important relative to certain other events, but what is the ultimate significance of any of those events? If everything is doomed to destruction, then what does it matter that you influenced anything? Ultimately, it makes no difference. In his poem, The End of the World, the American poet Archibald MacLeish portrays life as an idiotic circus until one day, the show is all over. Let me read it to you now. Quite unexpectedly, as Vassero, the armless ambidextrian, was lighting a match between his great and second toe, and Ralph the lion was engaged in biting the neck of Madame Sussman while the drum pointed, and Teeny was about to cough in waltz time, swinging Jocko by the thumb, quite unexpectedly, the top blew off, and there, there overhead, There, there hung over those thousands of white faces, those dazed eyes, there in the starless dark, the poise, the hover, there with vast wings across the canceled skies, there in the sudden blackness, the black pall of nothing, 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 nothing at all. This is the horror of modern man. Because he ends in nothing, he ultimately is nothing. The contributions of the scientist to the advance of human knowledge, the researches of the doctor to alleviate human pain and suffering, the efforts of the diplomat to secure peace in the world, the sacrifices of good people everywhere to better the lot of the human race, in the end, all these come to nothing. They make no bit of difference, not one bit. Thus, on atheism, life itself becomes ultimately meaningless. Man and the universe are without ultimate significance. Second, there is no ultimate value in life. If there is no God, then there can be no objective standards of right and wrong. By objective standards, I mean standards which exist independently of human opinion. If God does not exist, then moral values are either just expressions of personal taste or else the byproducts of socio-biological evolution and conditioning. As the philosopher of science Michael Roos explains, the position of the modern evolutionist is that humans have an awareness of morality because such an awareness is of biological worth. Morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction and any deeper meaning is illusory. Richard Dawkins puts it succinctly. There is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. In a world without God, who's to say whose values are right and whose are wrong? Who's to judge that one person's values are inferior to those of another? The concept of morality loses all meaning in a universe without God. All we are confronted with in Jean-Paul Sartre's words is the bare, valueless fact of existence. In a world without God, there can be no objective right and wrong, only our culturally and personally relative subjective judgments. That means that it's impossible to condemn war, oppression, or crime as evil. Nor can you praise brotherhood, equality, Tolerance and love is good for in a universe without God good and evil do not exist There is only the bare valueless fact of existence and there is nobody to say that you are right and I am wrong Third there is no ultimate purpose of life if death stands with open arms at the end of life's trail then what is the goal of life? Is it all for nothing? Is there no reason for life? And what of the universe? Is it utterly pointless? If its destiny is a cold grave in the recesses of outer space, then the answer must be yes, it is pointless. There is no goal, no purpose for the universe. The litter of a dead universe will just go on expanding and expanding forever. And what of man? Is there no purpose at all for the human race? Or will it simply peter out someday lost in the oblivion of an indifferent universe? The English writer H.G. Wells foresaw such a prospect. In his novel The Time Machine, Wells' time traveler journeys far into the distant future to discover the destiny of man. All he finds is a dead earth except for a few lichens and moss orbiting a gigantic red sun. The only sounds are the rush of the wind and the gentle ripple of the sea. Beyond these lifeless sounds, writes Wells, the world was silent. Silent, it would be hard to convey the stillness of it. All the sounds of man, the bleeding of sheep, the cries of birds, the hum of insects, the stir that makes the background of our lives, all that was over. And so, Wells' time traveler returned. But to what? To merely an earlier point on the same purposeless rush towards oblivion. When as a non-Christian I first read Wells' book, I thought to myself, no, no, it can't end that way. But this is reality in a universe without God. If there is no God, it will end that way, like it or not. There is no hope. There is no purpose. In a famous passage, the atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell lamented that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius, are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins, all these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Thus as all these atheist philosophers bear witness, if God does not exist, then life is without ultimate meaning, value, or purpose. I hope that you understand the gravity of the alternatives before us. If God exists, then there is hope for man. But if God does not exist, then all we are left with is despair. That's why the question of the existence of God is so vital to man. As one writer has aptly put it, if God is dead, then man is dead too. Unfortunately, most people do not realize this fact. They continue on as though nothing had changed. I'm reminded of Nietzsche's story of the madman who in the early morning hours burst into the marketplace lantern in hand crying, I seek God, I seek God. Since many of those standing about did not believe in God, he provoked much laughter. Did God get lost, they taunted him, or is he hiding? Or maybe he's gone on a voyage or emigrated. And thus they yelled and laughed. Then writes Nietzsche, the madman turned in their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried, I shall tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how have we done this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually? Backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there any up or down left? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night and more night coming on all the while? Must not lanterns be lit in the morning? Do we not hear anything yet of the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? God is dead, and we have killed him. How shall we, the murderers of all murderers, comfort ourselves? The crowd stared at the madman in astonishment and silence. At last, he dashed his lantern to the ground. I have come too early, he said. This tremendous event is still on its way. It has not yet reached the ears of man. People did not truly comprehend what the consequences were of killing God. But Nietzsche predicted that someday people would draw the implications of their atheism and this realization would usher in an age of nihilism, that is, the destruction of all meaning and value in life. I find that most people still do not reflect upon the consequences of atheism. And so, like the crowd in Nietzsche's marketplace, go unknowingly on their way. I recently read, for example, that a Toronto based free thought organization wants to buy bus ads that proclaim, there probably is no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your day. (laughs) According to the spokesman for the group, they're still working on the layout. They want something happy, something bright, she said. I wonder what Friedrich Nietzsche would have thought of those ads. Few contemporary atheists have Nietzsche's courage to look atheism squarely in the face without blinking, but when we realize, as did Nietzsche, the nihilism that atheism implies, then his question presses hard upon us. How shall we, the murderers of all murderers, comfort ourselves? Confronted with the human predicament about the only solution the atheist can offer is that we simply face the absurdity of life and live bravely. But the fundamental problem with this solution is that it's impossible to live consistently and happily within the framework of such a world view. If you live consistently, you will not be happy. If you live happily, it is only because you are not consistent. Francis Schaeffer has explained this point well. Modern man says Schaeffer resides in a two-story universe. In the lower story is the finite world without God. Here life is absurd as we have seen. In the upper story are meaning, value, and purpose. Modern man lives in the lower story because he believes there is no God, but he cannot live happily in such an absurd world, and therefore he continually makes leaps of faith to the upper story to affirm meaning, value, and purpose, even though he has no right to since he does not believe in God. While giving lip service to atheism, the atheist lives as though life were important as though it really mattered what he thinks or does, as though certain things really were right or wrong, and so is outraged at the injustices of this world and acts as though his petty plans and projects really were significant. The dilemma of modern man is thus truly terrible. The atheistic world is insufficient to maintain a happy and consistent life. But if atheism fails in this regard, what about biblical theism? According to the biblical worldview, God does exist and man's life does not end at the grave. Biblical theism therefore provides the two conditions necessary for a meaningful, valuable, and purposeful life—God and immortality. Because of this, we can live consistently and happily within the framework of such a worldview, and thus biblical theism succeeds precisely where atheism breaks down. Now, I would be the first to say none of this proves that God exists. Even if atheism is unlivable, it may still be true. But in tonight's debate, we've not been asked to discuss whether it's true that God exists, but whether it matters. And on this score, I think there need be no dispute between Dr. DiCarlo and myself. In fact, I think we agree. Dr. DiCarlo has elsewhere stated, if there is no God, then the universe is simply accidental, and we humans are a product of that accident. The universe is devoid, then, of any absolute meaning or moral sense. I can only agree.
1: Uh, Thank you very much. Good evening. Uh, I wish to uh, thank the organizers for inviting me here tonight to discuss... The issue of whether or not God matters, I must uh, state right off the top that you know, my purpose is not really to intentionally offend any, any person's religious sensitivities uh, of anyone here this evening. I, I do know how personal and comforting religious uh, beliefs can be to some of you. Uh, I'm a former Roman Catholic myself, and uh, much of my immediate family still is. Um. I wish, you know, to make it clear that I've made it part of my life's work to study why people do in fact develop and, and practice religious beliefs. So again, uh, it's not my intention to cause mental anguish or, or distress to any theist, Christian or otherwise. But having said that, uh, I've been given the task of arguing against the idea that God matters. Uh, this I intend to do quite convincingly. In addressing the topic of whether or not God matters, I think uh, we must be fair. If I can get this thing to work here there we go that I agreed with dr. Craig of course the idea of God clearly matters historically and anthropologically right the study of faith-based systems uh, of mythology and re- religion are fascinating and occupy you know a good a good amount of my academic research that's what I that's what I was doing in, in, in the US at Harvard in this regard the concept of God matters quite a bit however I think we must, clarify our focus here and ask basically, you know, to which god are, are we referring? By now it's probably quite evident here that we're not discussing whether, you know, Zeus and Apollo and Artemis and Poseidon and all the others. That's not what we're discussing. These were quite important, I'm sure, to Greeks thousands of years ago. But they've they've fallen quite out of favor now. Uh, same true is true for Odin and Thor and you know, all the others of Norse tradition. Uh, Mercury and Bacchus, Neptune, and so on and so forth. So I'd like to be clear that these are not really essentially the gods that that apparently matter here. So let us be clear that tonight we're probably referring to a very specific god, though. It hasn't been mentioned very clearly, but I'm pretty sure that that we're talking about the god of Christianity, and that's fine. This narrows our focus much more sharply, uh, but creates a whole new set of problems uh, for it raises questions about... Well, whose interpretation of this particular God should, should we accept and why? Dr. Craig is quite convinced that his understanding of God matters. And I'm sure he's, he, he is convinced of that himself and, and tries to convince others. Uh, it matters a great deal to himself, but um, it, it really doesn't matter to me in the least. How is that possible, right? How is, how is this possible, So Dr. Craig's claim, right, is basically that he's in possession of information which is absolutely certain and provides insight in, into the very nature of reality. And this is no small claim. Um, I, I can't make these types of claims. Uh, I, I, basically what I have is, is knowledge of my inability to attain this kind of absolute irrefutable knowledge. I, I, I don't possess this. I, I wish I did. I really do. It would be a, a different world if we all did but I, I don't, and, and I admit that freely in, in front of you uh, tonight. Um, essentially, <laughs> I, I really don't believe Dr. Craig's God exists, and, and, and to be fair, and, and without offense, you know, Hindus, Muslims, and Jews, you're all wrong as well, equally as much as Dr. Craig. So, I'm an equal opportunist atheist, I I suppose, in in that regard, okay? So, I refuse to to waste my time and energy devoted to a set of beliefs that may ultimately turn out to be false, for I have no real indication, I have no real evidence, I have no real um, reasons, although I'm sure Dr. Craig and I could talk uh, for hours on, say, the ontological argument, or we could talk about uh, the teleological argument, cosmological argument, for the existence or non-existence of God. And these are fascinating in and of themselves. And I I wish we could come up with a logical way for proving the existence of God. And I, you know, I thought Anselm did a a remarkable job for his time in trying to come up with a, a logical way in which man can understand that God in fact exists. So basically there's two ways to to find out about God as far as I I see, Uh, Dr. Craig may know of others, and that is God speaks to us through revelation, prophecy and that sort of thing, or we figure it out, we go up to to, to God. I've never been privy of either, uh, but I would not discount it, so I'm a skeptic. Uh, but I'm a proper skeptic. I'm a Peronian, which means I will leave the future open to the possibility to consider that I may be convinced tonight or any other night that the god of which a uh, Dr. Craig or anybody else uh, to which they speak actually does exist. So please don't think I'm um, basically a nearsighted dogmatist with my head up a particular orifice that I can't <laughs> accept the possibility that this may somehow be apparent to me that I've been wrong for all, all these many years. Uh, so, so I hold that open, as, as I would imagine Dr. Craig would, about the possibility that he could be wrong. Uh, but I'm not sure, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. Now, um, essentially, in, in terms of uh, having no effect over me or my family or my, my community or my world, I'm much more concerned with trying to better our lives um, through rational and, and pragmatic means. Um, this uh, rather than hope for, for an imaginary being to take care of things for me I'll pick up the slack and I'll try to get things to be a little bit better in this world um, not that uh, belief in a religion can't influence people to be nice or to be good but I don't need the promise of a hereafter to try to make things better I think making things better is a reward in and of itself I don't need absolutes to, rec- to recognize proximal truths, truths that can be pragmatic and reasonable like compassion uh, for our fellow man, the central doctrine of Christianity which is love. I think many great ideas come from world religions without a doubt. I'm just not convinced that I need a divine hand patting me on the back every time I do a good deed or the promise that there is some wonderful – I don't know, what, nirvana, happy hunting ground – heaven, whatever we can define as being an absolute reward, I don't need that. If it happens, wonderful. That's, that's great, you know. It's, it's kind of a bonus, I suppose. But I can't really expect to think that should there be a God and this God is looking down upon me, he's going to hate me for what I'm doing, you know. I think, you know, uh, as Edward O. Wilson said to me, you know, De Carlo, I think... Should there be a God, the first people he'll let into heaven are the skeptics, the ones who actually challenged him, the ones who actually didn't just follow like blind sheep, but actually really questioned whether or not this thing does, in fact, exist. And said, good for you, you know, you, you, you challenged uh, various concepts of how people defined who or what I am. So um, what what's happened recently in history, of course, is, is that um, when Barack Obama finished his inaugural... Uh, address, he wanted to include, uh, you know, the words, so help me God. And it was actually a point of debate. Uh, I'm involved in an AM 640 Toronto radio show Tuesday mornings, and I talked to a gentleman named uh, Reverend uh, Charles McVitie. And uh, we talk about various things. Our last topic uh, last week, actually, was uh, should these ads be allowed to to go up in in the TTC, right? Um, But another topic was should Obama be allowed to say so help me God you know and they said well what do you think atheist boy or whatever and I said um is he religious you know well he certainly appears to be religious right but if you've read your Machiavelli (laughs) appear to be many things to many people right whether you are religious or not if that's what the Americans want you to be you know don't be saying so help me Allah that's not, that's not getting you the votes, so help me, Brahma, no, no. Soaring eagle, keep going, keep going. Uh, white redneck uh, fundamentalist Christian god, yes, you're much closer now with that, and you're going to get a lot more votes with that, so play it up. So I don't know how religious Barack Obama is. I really don't, and you know what? To be honest, I wish he, he would if he is half Muslim, half Christian, whatever, that he would, that he would visit mosques, you know, that he would go in, uh, and synagogues, and Hindu temples. I don't think, you know, I don't think, I don't think any religious person has gotten it right, so much so that they have privileged information over the rest of us. What I think is, you, you have beliefs in a particular God, and then that God is defined in a, in, a, in a particular type of way. So, when Obama says, so help me God, that's not gonna work, that's really not, not going to help him at all, it's really the people of the United States, right, and the rest of the world. That's what's gonna make the world a better place. What often divides us are our definitions of God. You know, and you don't belong to the same club that I do. You believe in what? Oh, no, not that type of God. No, 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 you're not, you're not in the club. We believe God does X, Y, and Z. You believe God does A, B, and C. You're wrong. And some people will take this to extremes, of course, and I don't have to remind you of, of, of the atrocities that religious belief can generate. Now, do I expect you folks to be uh, so fundamental in your uh, beliefs of God that you would actually harm others in doing so? I hope not, right? I really hope not. Because if you would, you really need to seriously consider the presuppositions underlying your entire belief structure. Because I don't know what kind of faith you can have in any kind of religion that would say, it's really not a bad idea to hurt other people who don't think the same way as you. And, and I, I can't imagine Christianity really maintaining that view with any kind of consistency. I'm sure Dr. Craig would not think that that was a consistent idea, or any religion. And yet we've just had eight years of our neighbors to the south, of which Dr. Craig is a citizen, of a man who ruled the free world and had one of the most skewed concepts of Christianity I have ever witnessed in my life. I just don't recall in any of the gospels where it was ever said, and if so inclined, invade foreign lands for their natural resources. And kill lots of people while you're doing it. I don't ever remember Jesus saying that. I must have missed school that day. But it just, Mr. Bush is not a good Christian. He's not a very good Christian at all. Now, Dr. Craig's understanding of of God, basically defined as a particular interpretation of a Christian God, really does not matter because it doesn't exist. I think that's the point that we have to get clear about tonight. So I find it epistemically irresponsible to believe in the existence of his or any definition of God. And any of the valuable ideas from biblical scriptures or any supposed holy text can be realized through really humanly conceived and developed ideas, morals, and values. In other words, we do not need gods to justify or give way to values, as Dr. Craig maintains without absolute. really have a world without meaning and whatnot? No, maybe at the absolute level, of course I would agree with you. Maybe there is no absolute value system to which we can base all of our actions upon. Maybe it just, it doesn't exist. Maybe there's no ultimate right and wrong about certain types of actions. And I can understand why that would scare some people. Because some people will feel, well, all is permitted then. If if God doesn't exist, then all is permitted. We can do whatever we want. You know, I, I don't know what some people's concepts of atheists are, you know? Do I, do I just have like 24 hour long, you know, orgies and I, I, I juggle kittens on fire and, you know? I, I don't know what your, your con- conception of a, god, uh, of a godless uh, person is. I will make it clear, it'll, it'll come up in later slides, but I might as well tell you now. I'm an agtheist, which is a term I invented which is sufficiently u- ugly enough that nobody else has come up with. And it's a hybrid of agnosticism and atheism. I'm an atheist to all world religions. I don't believe any of you have it right. And I defy you to demonstrate that to me without contradiction or inconsistency. But I'm an agnostic when it comes to whether or not the universe was intended to be. To that, none of us can answer. We all must be agnostic. I live my life as though I will bracket that idea of whether or not was intended to be and if it's intended then something has had the power to generate it to come into existence I live my life as though it it wasn't intended or it doesn't matter either way and I just try to figure out the best possible way I can live my life I just try to think how am I going to be a good person how am I going to uh, be compassionate and care for others um, within The confines and constraints that act upon me each and every day. Dr. Craig is talking about values. How good are your values? Are you a good Christian? Are you a good Muslim? A good Jew or a good Hindu? What does that mean? What happens when a young woman, very successful, living in Forest Hill in Toronto, a doctor walks into the St. Clair subway station with her six-month-old and jumps in front of a subway. She dies, the six-month-old dies. Now, how could she do this? How could she do this? If you want to kill yourself, that's one thing. But why why take the child? How horrible is that? And then we find out this woman was postpartum psychotic. It's a little bit different than just being postpartum depressed. Given the odds, of the number of women here tonight at least one of you will be diagnosed with postpartum depression at least if not postpartum psychosis you will want to harm your child you will wonder why you have these feelings why do you have these thoughts and if you are religious it is really going to mess you up because you are not going to be able to justify it in any way now this is a product of neuroendocrine processes within your brain of which you have very little control. How can you live by values if you yourself don't have the physical constraint, the power, the free will by which to choose otherwise? So let's be careful here tonight. Let's be very careful about how we define values, absolute knowledge, these very lofty ideals. I would love them. I would love them. I would love to know what they are. And in the words of Cuba Gooding Jr. to Tom Cruise that I might say to Dr. Craig show me the money. Right? If you can show me the evidence then I will be forced to believe you. And we all will. I don't believe that's going to happen tonight. God does not matter because God does not exist. At least the gods that we have defined according to organized religion. So, should God somehow exist in some way hitherto unknown to me? I have no real tangible evidence or reason to believe in such a God. However, should that appear, maybe even tonight, maybe even with what Dr. Craig will say in the next few minutes, I'm willing to change my mind, but I'm not going to hold my breath. Thank you. <laughs>
0: You'll recall that in my opening speech, I argued that if God does not exist, then there is no ultimate meaning, no ultimate value and no ultimate purpose in life. And in fact, Dr. DiCarlo actually agrees with me on this. He says, of course, the idea of God matters, but he says, God himself doesn't matter because he doesn't exist. But the basic point is that it matters whether or not God exists, whether or not you're a theist or an atheist makes a huge difference in terms of meaning, value, and purpose in life. And Dr. DiCarlo hasn't given us any argument to show that God does not exist. He says, show me the evidence and then perhaps I'll believe. Well, we're not here tonight to debate the evidence for the existence of God, but I'd like to invite him to come to my debate tomorrow night at the University of Toronto with Dr. James Brown on the question, does God exist? And I'll be laying out five arguments for God's existence (laughs) as well as answering any objections that Dr. Brown would care to raise. But tonight, we're asking whether or not it matters if God exists. And I don't think Dr. DiCarlo has denied my first point that if God does not exist, there is ultimately no meaning in life or the universe. Secondly, I argued if there's no God, there is no ultimate value in life. His response was to say, but compassion can be a proximate value even if, as he admits, there is no ultimate value in life. Proximate value, that's just philosophers speak for relativism. It just means that for me, it may be valuable to be compassionate, but for somebody else, they needn't feel that way at all. It's purely relative. Let me expand on the modern evolutionary view of ethics from Steven Pinker at Harvard University. He writes, the scientific outlook has taught us that some parts of our subjective experience are products of our biological makeup and have no objective counterpart in the world. The tastiness of fruit, the scariness of heights, the prettiness of flowers are common features of our nervous system. And if our species had evolved in a different ecosystem or we were missing a few genes, our reactions could go the other way. Now, he says, if the distinction between right and wrong is also a product of brain wiring, why should we believe it is any more real? And if it is just a collective hallucination, how could we argue that evils like genocide and slavery are wrong for everyone rather than just distasteful to us? And in fact, there is no way to argue that. Um, On the atheistic view, um, there is no ultimate right or wrong. Everything becomes relative. J.P. Moreland, my colleague at Talbot, has written the following. He says if there is no moral truth to be discovered and I simply have to choose the moral point of view because that is the type of life that I find worthwhile for myself, then the decision is arbitrary and the decision to be a Mother Teresa instead of a Hitler is not a rational decision at all. It is very much like the decision to go to McDonald's instead of Burger King. It's purely arbitrary. In fact, this has profound implications because whose values are you going to adopt? Whose are right, whose are wrong? Peter Haas, in his very interesting book, Morality After Auschwitz, asked the question, how could an entire society have willingly participated in a state-sponsored program of mass torture and genocide for over a decade without any serious opposition? And this is his answer. He says, far from being contemptuous of ethics, the perpetrators acted in strict conformity with an ethic, which held that however difficult and unpleasant the task might have been, mass extermination of the Jews and gypsies was entirely justified. The Holocaust was possible only because a new ethic was in place that did not define the arrest and deportation of Jews as wrong, and in fact defined it as ethically tolerable and even good. And what Haas goes on to point out is that because of its internal coherence and consistency, the Nazi ethic could not be discredited from within. Only from a transcendent vantage point could one say that society's system of values was objectively wrong. A transcendent vantage point which is noticeably lacking on an atheistic naturalistic view of the world. Dr. DeCarlo adds, but on an atheistic view, you don't need the divine reward in order to do good. I didn't say you did. That wasn't my argument. My argument was that in the absence of a transcendent locus of moral value that transcends sociocultural relativism, then there is no objective moral value. It's just a product of sociobiological evolution. Thirdly, I argued that if there is no God, there's no ultimate purpose in life. Everything is doomed to destruction in the heat death of the universe and all of our activities until then are just like shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic. Ultimately, they are inconsequential. And thus, if there is no God, it seems to me really quite indisputable that it makes an enormous difference uh, that God does not exist. There's no ultimate meaning, value, or purpose. I then went on to argue, however, that one cannot live consistently and happily within the framework of such a worldview. And here, I thought Dr. De Carlo's responses bore out the truth of what I said. He said, for example, it doesn't matter uh, whether God exists or not, I'll try to make things a little better. Now notice on atheism, there is no content to the notion of, of a little better. There is no such thing as better or worse. All there is, is moral change, but you cannot say there is moral progress. Richard Taylor who is an eminent ethicist writes, the infanticide practiced by the Greeks of antiquity did not violate their customs. If we say it was nevertheless wrong, we are only saying it was forbidden by our ethical and legal rules. And the abominations practiced by the Nazis are forbidden by our rules but obviously not by theirs. The point is that you can have moral change but moral progress is impossible on a naturalistic view because there is no content of better or worse. And then notice the leap to the upper story, uh, that he he cannot remain in the world without value. He says, for example, um, that he'll try to make life a little better by acting compassionately. He condemns George Bush for invading foreign lands for their natural resources and killing lots of people. You see, all of these are moral judgments. The atheist cannot live consistently and happily as though it's all right for people to invade foreign lands and slaughter their people for oil. Uh, He wants to say that certain things are really wrong or really right. He wants to give charitably to help the Maasai people of Africa, for example, to better the lot of uh, the peoples of Africa. Why? Because that is a good moral thing to do. But that represents that leap from the lower to the upper story which is totally unjustified on an atheistic naturalistic worldview. Only if God exists can we live both consistently and happily within the framework of our view. Paul Kurtz who is a humanist philosopher has said with respect to moral nihilism and I quote, no one can consistently live his or her life under the domination of such an attitude. I would qualify Kurtz's remark. I would say, yes, you can perhaps live consistently, but if you do, you will be profoundly unhappy and depressed. Since that is difficult to do, it is more likely that you will make a leap to the upper story and you will choose to affirm meaning, value, and purpose in life, even though you have no right to, because on naturalism, these things do not exist. Finally, let me just comment that I I am not claiming absolute certainty with some sort of a private insight to reality. Uh, when I argue for God's existence, I do so on the basis of philosophical and scientific arguments that are open to inspection and are probabilistically based. Dr. DiCarlo says, I wish we could come up with a logical proof of God. Well, why does he wish that? Because it matters. It matters tremendously if God <laughs> exists. And, and that's, that's the burden of all that I'm trying to prove tonight. I'm not trying to prove that God exists tonight. That will be my burden tomorrow night at the University of Toronto, and I would invite you to join us for that debate if you can.
1: Okay, Dr. Craig, this is kind of like a smorgasbord. I don't know what to eat first. I mean, there's just so much stuff here. (laughs) Uh, Let's carry on here. Uh, We do not need gods to justify or give way to our values, our worldly values, serve us just fine. Now, if I may, I just need to find out where you would fall on this continuum because every time I have these debates I always wait to the very end. And uh, I I generally don't like to do this, this is something, uh, this is a continuum basically and some of you, if you're theistic, Christian or otherwise, where would you place yourselves in terms of how you mesh religion with evolutionary theory. I mean, the flat earthers are, are pretty much hardcore creationists. They actually, There are people who actually believe the earth is, is flat. Uh, there are geocentrist people who actually believe the sun does go around uh, the earth. There are young earth creationists, people who believe the universe is about 6,000 years old, depending on what Bishop Usher came up with. And then it just kind of goes down, down, down to, to materialistic evolution that has no God whatsoever, and everything is as uh, Dr. Craig uh, uh, defines. Would you mind telling me roughly where you would me? be? Yeah, where you would fall on that. Um,
0: I have a somewhat agnostic view of this, somewhere between progressive creationism and theistic evolution. Okay. Any of those would be acceptable in my understanding of the okay. evidence, but I have no hard... No, fast no, but
1: that's fine. As long as I know you're not a young earth creationist, it's just because the Bible <laughs> says this, you take it literally and it can't possibly be wrong. That's good. So um, that's, that's very helpful. So I mentioned that I'm an agtheist, right? Uh, all religions commit errors in, in human reasoning. Um, Dr. Craig's is, is, is just simply one, one more. Yeah, it's just another uh, religion it makes uh, human errors um, they're attainable at, at least uh, impossible at best now much of my attack is against the Christian God but this is really you know if we're talking about how God matters and so on and so forth this to me is really what it comes down to okay. this is called, what I call a disjunct of plausibility, a disjunct is either or in logic it means either or So here we have the the logical notation. Either the universe was intended or the universe was not intended. It really just comes down to that. I don't think there's a third possibility or a tenth. I really do think this is a disjunct of plausibility. Now, what what basically happens is I'm acknowledging my ignorance about which side of the disjunct I I should take. You know, was it intended, was it not intended? So what I do is I, I acknowledge my ignorance, and, and I suspend judgment because I have no real direct evidence. I, you know, um, as Dr. Craig said, yeah, I, I do wish that I did have evidence that, that his particular God was or could be known with any kind of, you know, absolute proof or absolute truth or whatnot, not because it matters, really, but just to end these debates, essentially, you know, once and for all, and sit down at the table together and realize, here we've got it, we've got absolutely. we've done it, you know, what an amazing accom- accomplishment that, that, that we've done. Now, like I said, I, I worry more about these types of uh, issues which matter most to me and my, my fellow inhabitants, but, you know, if there's no God, then, you know, as Dr. Craig said, the universe is, is accidental, we, therefore, would be accidental, and the universe Would would have no meaning and and he finds problems with this Why don't I? I don't really have a problem with this. I'm here. I'm having a relatively good time (laughs) When the party's over say good night and What what did you do while you were here? I believe the fear of death, this is one of the things I've been studying a fair bit in my life, and I I really believe when our ancestors developed consciousness to the level at which they could determine that, in fact, they were going to die, and there would have been times in our past where our ancestors did not know what death was, because we find dig sites where they just, they drop where they die. There's no burial rituals. We don't see this until about 40,000 years ago. And we've been evolving for six million, so, you know, we haven't always known what death was. But what I do believe is it's one of the things that contributes to the need to come up with an explanation about what's actually happened to that person. I mean, when we see an animal die, we say, well, the animals died, unless we believe in animism, that there's some kind of spirit that transcends and goes into another form or something. But in terms of Christianity, I mean... When you die, some part of you keeps living and somehow is, is immortal or whatnot. I really do believe the fear of death was largely responsible for the development of mythology, certainly the afterlife. Nobody wants the party to end, do we? Do you really want to go home early? No, the party's just getting going. You don't want to die. This is what I refer to as caveman angst, <laughs> you know, which is the, the idea that one of our ancestors realized, oh, crap, that's going to be me someday. And through what's called reasoning by analogy, they internalized it and thought, "I know, no, he's not gone. Yeah, he smells bad and he's discolored and he's not getting up, but he's still around. And we will, we'll all be around, right? And it became a communitarian thing. It became this kind of That's right, we figured out we're going to die. That's a bad thing. We got to do something about it. Okay, the party keeps going. The afterlife. How so? Well, and look at how many definitions of the afterlife there are. Which one's right? How do you determine that? Show me your reality measuring stick, Dr. Craig, and I will believe you. But I don't see one on your desk, and I don't think one exists. If it did, it'd make life... A lot different, wouldn't it? But I have not yet found one. That's really what we're lacking here, isn't It's something to measure reality. But we don't even have that. The skeptics were very good at showing that. They were extremely good at it. You want an example? Here's an example. Let's imagine there's 20 different types of metal bars underneath some of your chairs. And we turn off all the lights and it's pitch black in here. Some of those bars are made of lead, and some are made of steel, and some are made of iron, silver, bronze, and brass. But only one of them is made of gold. And I say, reach under your chair. If you've got one of these things, pick it up. Feel it. They're all the same density, all the same weight. Their smell has been masked. Their taste has been masked. And they all feel exactly the same. I say, pass them around. Go ahead. And in five minutes, I say, okay, stop. Who's got the gold one? Well, with the light's off, we can't tell. And this is the same for absolute truth. We may be in possession of absolute truth in some regard. You want to know how? Here's a quick example. Some of you believe in life after death. Some of you believe there is no life after death. Someone's right. Someone's wrong. We don't have a measuring stick even for that. So let's say for the sake of argument, that there is no afterlife and you believe that then you are in possession of absolute truth you have the gold bar in your hands but the lights are still off because we don't have a reality measuring stick right i wish i did because it matters epistemically right i could care less whether there's a god or not i do care about knowledge and i care enough to know when i don't know and i can't make certain types of claims And I think it's that kind of humility that's often lacking in those who claim to have absolute truth. And we have to be very careful about what we say is real or absolute and what is not. Now, it's frightening to some people to think that I'll never know the absolute truth, that I could die and I'll never exist again. What would that even be like, this caveman angst? What would it be like? Not not to exist forever and for all time. I'll help you out here. Remember what it was like 10 years before you were born? Like that. (laughs) Thank you.
0: I think Dr. DiCarlo's last speech made it evident that we're basically in agreement that if God does not exist, then there is no ultimate meaning, no ultimate value, and no ultimate purpose in life. In his last speech with respect to ultimate value in life, he said, I admit it, but I've got no problem with this. We'll just party on as long as we can. Well, what I would suggest is that it has profound consequences if there is no objective meaning to life. As I said, that means that the decision to become a Mother Teresa or an Adolf Hitler becomes arbitrary, and all of the profound social consequences that that has. Viktor Frankl, who was tortured in the communist, or rather in the Nazi prison camps, wrote the following. If we present man with a concept of man which is not true, we may well corrupt him. When we present him as a mere product of heredity and environment, we then feed the nihilism to which modern man is prone. I became acquainted with the last stage of corruption in my second concentration camp, Auschwitz. The gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing but the product of heredity and environment, or as the Nazis liked to say, of blood and soil. I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka and Majdanek, were ultimately prepared, not in some ministry or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and in the lecture halls of nihilistic philosophers and scientists. Nihilism has profound consequences. That's why this blithe attitude of shrugging your shoulders and saying I have no problem with it, I think is simply naive. It matters tremendously if there is an ultimate and objective meaning to life. Now, Dr. DiCarlo, in his last speech, said religious beliefs are the result of a desire for immortality, uh, and that's why belief in religion arises. Now, if this is supposed to be an argument for atheism, then it simply commits what's called the genetic fallacy. The genetic fallacy is trying to discredit a belief by showing how it originated. For example, someone trying to discredit your belief in democracy by saying, well, you believe that because you were raised in a democratic society. Even if that's true, that does nothing to show that your belief in democracy is therefore false or unjustified. So the real question is, has Dr. DiCarlo given any reason to think that religious belief is unjustified? Well, not in tonight's debate. Michael Murray, who works on evolutionary accounts of religious belief, says, These accounts merely aim to explain the origins of religious beliefs. And as we all learned in our Intro to Philosophy courses, an account of a belief's origins tells us nothing about its truth. To think otherwise is to commit the notorious genetic fallacy. Nothing we say or discover about the origins of our religious beliefs is going to make any difference to our assessment of the truth of those beliefs. So that issue is simply not relevant in tonight's debate. Now, Dr. DiCarlo insists that we should be humble and cautious in our appraisal of the evidence, and I perfectly agree with that. I already said I'm not espousing absolute certainty. Uh, I think he's absolutely correct in saying that we need to approach these questions with caution and with humility. And indeed, I'm surprised at the confidence with which he tells us that God does not exist and is imaginary uh, given his own epistemic limitations. So it seems to me that uh, there really isn't anything in dispute then remaining for me to address. Without God, there is no ultimate meaning, value, or purpose in life. I've argued that we cannot live consistently and happily within the framework of such a worldview. I showed examples of how Dr. DiCarlo himself makes the leap to the upper story to affirm the meaning, value, and purposefulness of his own actions and projects. And I've argued that if God exists, then in fact, objective meaning, value, and purpose are secured, which enables us to live consistently and happily. So it seems to me that it's pretty clear tonight that it matters a great deal whether or not God exists.
1: Okay. Yeah, I can't come to your debate tomorrow night. I, I'm involved in another one, actually, right, I, so <laughs> I'd like to. But I, I'd I, like uh, to come to yours, yeah. too. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll film them and we'll swap, right? right? <laughs> okay, so uh, let me continue on here. Um, without God, there's no meaning and purpose um, there's no reason, but that just means uh, we're all alone in the universe. If, if God exists and he created us, he made our existence possible, why such a big place? I mean, do you have any idea how big the universe is? Why are we so privileged in this fairly standard Solar system within this galaxy of which there are millions and in this vast enormity of space. Why did he go through so much effort for us? Much smaller universe, much more quaint universe, I think, would have sufficed. But, but it's absolutely huge, it's enormous. Why go through all that trouble? Is that for the, for the afterlife? Are we going to travel around and, and see it? But it is very, very large for what we really need and for what any type of god would be able to to tell us there are so many different ways in which we can define who we are how we got here uh... what value systems we should uh, believe and practice and many of the world religions of course offer this they answer what i call the big five and the big five are essentially What are the limitations of my knowledge? What can I know, right? The fundamental epistemic question of philosophy. What can I know? What do I know? The second, of course, is, well, what am I, you know? what, What actually am I? The Third is, why am I here? How did I get here? Why am I here? The fourth is, now that I'm here, how should I behave? And the fifth is, what is to come of me? When our ancestors developed consciousness and language capable enough to allow them to reflectively consider and ponder these very, very powerful questions, it helped to define them in specific ways. Dr. Craig answers them in a supernaturally way. His limitations of knowledge are limited by the scope and breadth of his understanding of critical and biblical exegesis. He is a physical and spiritual being. He's here because God wanted him to be here. How should he behave depends on his interpretation of scriptures, and depending on how he behaves, it answers the fifth question of what is to come of him in this life and after he dies. I answer them naturalistically. What are the limitations of my knowledge? They are limited, as Wittgenstein said, by my language and how I can symbolically represent my ideas. So mathematics and language and logic, context, syntax, all of these determine to what extent I can know anything. What am I? I'm a physical being, I'm a homo sapiens sapien, evolved, split from a common ancestor, from a chimpanzee five to seven million years ago in the African savannah. Prior to that, our ancestors were reptiles. Prior to that, fish. Prior to that, pond scum. Prior to that, stardust. Every atom inside your bodies was once inside a star. I think that's a pretty neat thing to know about ourselves. It's kind of interesting that we've been able to evolve cognitively to the point where we can actually figure stuff like that out. I think that's amazing. But we didn't do it through any particular book, which was the supposed revealed truth of a particular god. We, our ancestors, rolled up their sleeves and figured this out. Nothing told them to do that. It was their reason which allowed them to figure this out. And I think that's an amazing testament to humankind and to our abilities. And I'm not being prideful or boastful. I'm not practicing hubris. I'm just saying it's incredible that we are here tonight and that we have been able to figure that out about ourselves, that every atom inside your body was once inside a star. You're very old, believe it or not stuff that makes you will never go out of existence. Even after the heat death of the universe, there will still be stuff. There just won't be a lot of heat. That's all. My question to Dr. Craig, of course, is, so what? Why do you need purpose so much? Why do you need meaning? What are you scared of? Right? It takes a lot of guts to look into that abyss and say, yeah, so what? So what if we're all alone? Well, we'll make up the rules then. We'll get together and we'll figure out what's right and wrong. And don't ever, ever think for a second that science or Darwinism or evolution ever led to Auschwitz or Nazism or any of these godless horrors. It didn't. (laughs) Idiotic humans did that. People who really didn't know what was going on in the world. And they were hateful and they were hurtful. And I think we could all agree that we don't tend to like people like that in our world and that we can make up rules that will guide us and determine how it is we wish to behave towards one another. And I think that's important in and of itself. These are known as proximal values, values we can get together. We don't need a basis in any kind of you know, absolute truth of a particular type of god. We, we don't need that. We really don't. Not all world religions can be right, but they can all be wrong. And we need to remember this, that there are times at which people are going to put forward religious views about the existence of a God and why it matters so much in their lives and why it should matter in your life as well. But I've received no evidence here tonight of why I should change my particular views. It still doesn't really matter to me one way or the other, whether a particular God exists or not. Now, I'm just going to end here. I'm going to give you a little bit of an experiment, okay? I want you to think about something just for a second. This is to all the theists out there. Okay? Just imagine for a second that your God doesn't exist. What does it change? Nothing. You're still here. You still love your family. You still love art and poetry and literature and music. You still care about the way in which politics is run. It doesn't change a thing. Okay? So it doesn't matter. Thank you.
0: Oh, you want me to read it? Okay. (laughs) Do you think that without God, there can be a basic set of values that all human beings should have in common, such as we need to maximize human happiness? The joker in this sentence or in this question is the word should, and that expresses a moral oughtness And in the absence of God, I see no reason to think that human beings should or have a moral duty to recognize certain things, like the maximization of human happiness. And indeed, there are plenty of people in the world who don't find that a moral duty. Uh, Nazis, uh, Afrikaner, apartheid, South Africa, uh, colonial, imperial powers, Marxists, so no, I, I, I think that in the absence of God, there simply are no moral oughts that are absolute and imperative that all human beings have to obey. They, they simply become uh, the relative byproducts of cultural conditioning, and therefore are socio-culturally relative.
1: Dr. Takalo, response? Oh, yes. Um, I believe that uh, we should make every effort to try to find out if in fact there are universals. I do think they um, they can be determined uh, to some degree. I don't really hold out much hope for absolutes, I don't. Um, that doesn't mean I'm thrust into a sea of relativism as Dr. Craig would maintain, I'm kind of in Kind of the, the middle gray area where I think what we can do is come up with with proximal values. Um, I tend to live my life according to uh, the golden rule, um, fairness and justice, and uh, egalitarianism. But the golden rule did not come from Christianity or Islam or Judaism. It came from biology. It's essentially reciprocal altruism. It's the idea that what goes around comes around. So. I just think it's it's a good idea, where possible, to try to pe- treat people as as you would you know expect to be treated yourself. And that I'm sorry, that has to be tempered though. You you can't just have people like uh, Paul Bernardo saying, "Yeah, sure, that's how I'd like to be treated." So that's you know, it has to it has to be tempered.
2: All right. I would now like to call on a question directed to uh, Dr. DiCarlo excuse me, before you answer that, just in case everyone didn't hear, the question was directed toward towards Carlo, if that, um, if we are evolving, uh, why are there still uh, monkeys and chimpanzees around, and are, are we still evolving, and does he agree or disagree that the world is, in fact, um, getting worse rather than better?
1: Right. Well, I mean, very quickly, uh, there's, there's going to be chimps and bonobos and macaques and, and things like that. Uh, we went our way, uh, hominins, we went our way, uh, common uh, ancestor to the chimpanzee, and the chimps went their way. Um, uh, could they become more human-like in the future? Perhaps, but that would depend on evolutionary pressures and an enormous amount of time. Don't forget, at one point, we were not alone. I mean, just 30,000 years ago, there was us, Homo sapiens, there was Florinsiensis. there was Erectus, and there was Neanderthal. Neanderthal disappeared about 30,000 years ago, when uh, Cro-Magnon moved into Western Europe, more than likely intercepted, um, met up with them, killed them, and in some cases, ate them. So um, that's evolution red in tooth and claw. Uh, shouldn't things be getting better rather than getting worse? I, I really don't know what that means. Um, in, in terms prior to cultural evolution, prior to our ability to culturally affect our environments, in terms of biology, um... Evolution is going nowhere and rather slowly at that. Evolution can lead to greater complexity or it can lead to greater simplicity. It all depends on the environmental constraints and the allele or the gene frequencies through any given population.
0: I think the question betrays a misunderstanding of evolutionary theory. The theory does not hold that we evolved from chimpanzees or monkeys. The theory holds that monkeys chimpanzees the great apes and human beings evolved from a common primate ancestor and therefore it's not surprising that there would still be monkeys and chimpanzees around us as, as well as human beings I agree right
2: good to see some agreement can be reached so now I would call on a second question directed towards Dr Craig I'll go with the first hand, the very back row, in the hat. The question was just seeking uh, clarification on Dr. Craig's part, whether or not he said that absolute um, understanding of the existence of God was possible.
0: I was responding to Dr. DiCarlo's PowerPoint, where he said Craig claims he is absolutely certain and provides insight into reality. And what I said was simply that I don't claim absolute certainty. I'm not saying that for some people they don't feel absolutely certain. Uh, I'm just not making that claim myself. My claim is much more modest. I would say, for example, that it's more probable than not that God exists. Um, So I'm not making those sorts of uh, strong claims.
1: And to me, generally, the experience with with those who, who are religious is they 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 tend to get up in the morning and, and you know maintain that their their answers to the big five are are fairly solid. I, I would imagine you would maintain your beliefs,
0: Dr. Craig, with a fairly high level of probability.
1: Excuse me. I would would you maintain that your beliefs about God are fairly highly probable or
0: I don't know how to estimate that. I mean, so when... could you just
1: as likely be wrong? Excuse me? Could you just as likely be wrong?
0: No, no, I, I said I thought it was more probable okay, than okay. not. But so, when you talk right. about high probability i mean how do you measure this how quantity? do you measure it yeah exactly how do you it's, measure that it, it's very give very give me that uh, give uh, me nebulous. that
1: reality measuring stick and this debate is over
2: uh, all right with that i'll lead off to a question directed towards dr delgado thank you the question is asking do we have a moral responsibility to arrest a moral errors that we do not necessarily encounter in our daily lives, s- such as genocide in Darfur, injustices of uh, dealing with the natives in uh, North America, etc.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think to some degree, but only so insofar as we can, right? Um, like, odd implies can. So if, if we can't really help those people, then I don't think there's a moral imperative to help them. So what moral obligation? I was in... Um, Um, Toronto yesterday at a play and right outside the theater is a homeless person asking for money. What moral obligation does that homeless person have to help the genocide that's happening in Darfur? Well he's just trying to make it through to the next day and the same thing I think can be extended outward to us, to the rest of us as well. I think you've got to pretty much take care of what you can at home first. Make sure you and your family and the, the people you care about in your community Is looked after, and then it can radiate outwards from from there. I am, you know. Christ said there will always be poor, there will always be suffering, and and it doesn't. It seems no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try to eradicate the injustices of the world, you still get situations where they keep cropping up, and and we want them to stop, but we're sometimes prevented due to sometimes uh, political ideology, sometimes due to resources and whatnot. And it's incredibly complex. And it would be so nice if we could just wave our hand or if some great being could wave its hand and make everything all right. And I'm still waiting. So I'll try to do what I can and you try to do what you can.
0: Uh, it's a fascinating debate where the atheist is quoting Christ and the cr- Christian is quoting Nietzsche. <laughs> um, but I would basically agree with that. I, I think that uh, Jesus' parable of the Great Samaritan especially teaches that all people are our neighbor. And so the commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus said, extends to all people. And um, What I don't agree with is that on atheism or naturalism we would have any sort of moral responsibilities uh, because moral uh, duties and values are simply illusory on a naturalistic view. But certainly from a theistic perspective we have such a responsibility.
2: For those who did not hear, the question was if we do need, uh, in fact, a god to tell us right or wrong, which god?
0: Okay. Let me make some distinctions here that are very important. My argument tonight was not that we need God in order to tell us what is right and wrong. That's a question of moral epistemology, which means your theory of knowledge. How do you know right and wrong? I don't think we need God uh, to function as a source of moral knowledge. Uh, On the contrary, as a Christian, I think God's moral law is written on our hearts so that we have an instinctive grasp of the difference between good and evil. My argument is rather an argument of moral ontology, that is to say what is real, and I'm arguing that you need to have God as a transcendent ground for the reality of moral values and duties, not for a knowledge of the moral values and duties that actually exist. Now in answer to your question, I am a Christian theist, but my argument tonight is actually consistent with generic theism. Uh, Uh, any sort of theism that would hold to perfect being theology, that God is the greatest conceivable being uh, and uh, accords man immortality in the afterlife, and that would be consistent with Buddhism, or rather with uh, uh, Islam, with Judaism, uh, Christianity, certain kinds of uh, uh, Hindu uh, theism, uh, perhaps some sort of deism. So my argument tonight is for uh, concerns a kind of uh, broad, intersectarian view of God, though I myself am a Christian.
1: Were you ever in politics, Dr. Cruz?
0: No. <laughs> you should. You should. Thank you. <laughs> I would like That's to. That's exactly okay. how a
1: politician would answer that, right? In God we trust. Which God? All of them. All of them. Your God and my God. It's got a big hug going here, right? But of course, this is inconsistent. It cannot be all of them. There are very specific definitions to Dr. Craig's Christian God, from a Muslim God, from Hindu gods, uh, from Aboriginal gods, from Norse gods, and Roman and Greek gods, and whatnot. So they're not all the same. So the moral ontology really doesn't fly here, because he has a very specific understanding of a particular type of god which has not yet come out of the closet tonight, but we know it's in there. And no such God has written any kind of moral law on my heart, not that I've been able to tell anyhow. And I've looked, you know, and I was baptized and I was, you know, raised a Catholic and whatnot. So I I do know a bit about uh, the Bible, but I find it deeply offensive, really, to, to talk about that kind of divisiveness of, you know, generalizing God's but we know we really know it's it has to do with a very specific type of God.
2: Thank you very much for that question. Now a question for Dr. DiCarlo. For those who didn't hear the question was if God doesn't exist who is a claim and what is right and wrong and how can this person use exa- the example of how can he claim uh, the genocide was right or wrong or slavery was right or wrong?
0: Right. Yeah,
1: it's something we're going to have to decide uh, for ourselves. And uh, as this gentleman's question addressed in the very start, which is a very good question, which is, we should make an effort to try to come up with universal principles, if possible, or universal values, or values that are common to many different uh, societies throughout the world. And I I think if we look carefully, we are going to find that there are some basic ones. Uh, Generally, people do not like to be in discomfort or in pain. Um, uh, Masochist aside, um, generally speaking, we do not enjoy being in pain. Um, And and we generally uh, try to avoid seeing ourselves and those we care for uh, to be in discomfort or dismay or in pain. So what we can do is we can take that as a universal, say, okay, I don't like it. This is the golden rule. Don't forget, Golden Rule is not a Christian idea. It comes from biology. It is much older than any world religion, and it basically says the same thing. You you wouldn't want to be treated that way. You don't want to be in discomfort and pain. You wouldn't want people practicing genocide or any atrocities on you or the ones you care for. What justifies you, then, in doing it to them? And that's something I think we can agree upon, Without the need for a transcendent anchor, as 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 my as my colleague uh,
0: Dr. Craig maintains, okay. when Dr. DeCarlo says we should try to look for universals, that word "should" already expresses a moral imperative. He's already leapt to the upper story in thinking that we have some sort of moral duty to seek for universals. The minute you hear someone use the word should or ought, your antennae should immediately go up because then they're making some sort of a uh, a moral claim. And it seems to me that though we uh, might be able to find common moral decencies among all cultures, in fact, these are still not objective right and wrong. As Paul Kurtz, uh, the humanist philosopher points out, he says, These just lay down moral imperatives necessary for group cohesion and survival. Individuals who abide by them are commended and praised. Those who flout them are condemned and blamed as immoral or evil. It's just a means of fostering group cohesion and uh, cooperation, but there isn't any objectivity to these sorts of values. You see the same sort of altruism exhibited in a troop of baboons.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Right. You're right.
0: Well, I hope you've enjoyed this evening as much as I have. I thank Dr. DiCarlo for his interaction. I think that this has been an important evening. I've argued tonight that there is no ultimate meaning, no ultimate value, no ultimate purpose in life if God does not exist, but that man cannot live consistently and happily within the framework of such a worldview. And I think that that has been amply established this evening. So what I want to do is shift gears here in my closing statement and share something on a more personal level. I myself, unlike Dr. DiCarlo, was not raised in a religious home or even a church-going family. But when I became a teenager, I began to ask the big five questions. Who am I? Why am I here? How should I behave? What is to become of me? And in the search for answers, I began to attend a church in our local community. Only problem was, instead of answers, all I found was a social country club where the dues were a dollar a week in the offering plate. And the other students who pretended to be such good Christians on Sunday lived for their real God the rest of the week, which was popularity. And this really bothered me because I thought, here I am, spiritually empty inside, and yet I'm living a better life than they are, and they claim to be Christians. They're all a bunch of hypocrites. And so I began to get very bitter and angry toward the institutional church and the people in it. And soon this attitude spread toward other people. I I thought, everybody's a phony. They're all holding up plastic masks to the world. And the real person is cowering down inside, afraid to come out and be real. And so I grew to be very hateful toward other people. I threw myself into my my studies so I wouldn't have to be with people. I said, I want nothing to do with them. I I hate them. want no relationships with them. And I felt deeply the sort of darkness and despair that I later learned was described by the French existentialists like Sartre, Camus, and by uh, atheists like Russell. I, I felt personally the meaninglessness of life that I've described tonight. And I remember I walked into my German class one day feeling particularly crummy, and I sat down behind a girl who's one of these types, you know, that is always so happy, it just makes you sick. (laughs) And I tapped her on the shoulder, and she turned around, and I said, Sandy, what are you always so happy about, anyway? And she said, well, Bill, it's because I know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And I said, well, I go to church. And she said, that's not enough, Bill. You've got to have him really living in your heart. And I said, well, what would he want to do a thing like that for? And she said, because he loves you, Bill. Bill. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks. I'd never heard that before. And to think that the God of the universe could love me, that worm named Bill Craig down there on that speck of dust called the planet Earth, it staggered me. I couldn't take it in. Well, I went home that night and I got a New Testament and I began to read it. And I was absolutely captivated by the person of Jesus of Nazareth. There was a brilliance about his teaching that I had never encountered before. And there was an authenticity about his life that wasn't characteristic of those people in the church I was going to that claimed to be his followers. And I knew I couldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Well, that began for me a six-month search, uh, during which I read books, I I talked to people, I sought God in prayer. And to make a long story short, at the end of that six months, I finally just cried out to God one night and yielded my life to him. And as I did so I felt this tremendous infusion of joy, like a balloon being blown up and blown up until it was ready to burst. I remember I rushed outside. It was a warm Midwestern summer evening and you could see the Milky Way from horizon to horizon. And I looked up at the stars and I thought, God, I've come to know God. And that moment changed my whole life. You see, I had thought enough about this message during those six months to realize that if I ever became a Christian, that this was the greatest news ever announced, that there is a God who loves you and wants you to be his personal friend. So if you haven't found God in that sort of personal and intimate way tonight, I'd encourage you to do what I did. Pick up a New Testament, begin to read it, and ask yourself, could this really be the truth? Could there really be a God who loved me and sent his son into the world to, to die for me so that I might know him and have a relationship with him that he created me to have. I believe that if you do, it can change your life in the same way that it changed mine.
1: Uh, again, I'd like to thank the, the organizers for inviting me tonight, and, and I very much enjoyed uh, Uh, this dialogue and exchange uh, with Dr. Crick. I must say, uh, probably the most enjoyable debater I've gone up against. You're very passionate, you're very poetic, certainly believe um, very strongly. Um, But much like the others, you're you're still wrong. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, Now, um, to, to close up here, I'll, I'll just comment on a few things uh, Dr. Craig said, and, uh, and some of the things I want to get across as well. Um, Dr. Craig has a very powerful faith. He does not have knowledge, you know, or we would all have it. He would be able to demonstrate it, and, and, and so he has faith. So he had an experience. He had a religious experience, you know, as a, you know, he's, he's got a profound faith, and I'm, I am happy for him that he has in his mind found this particular type of God. Because if it makes Dr. Craig a nicer person, then I really don't have to worry about him busting into my house and stealing my TV for his crack habit. Right? So I see it as being a good thing, you know? And as long as he's not torturing animals and he's, you know, he's not abusing humans, right? It basically comes down to tolerance versus harm. I'm very tolerant of people's beliefs in, in, in practically anything, religious, political moral philosophical but once the beliefs start to generate actions that create harm and i'm not saying harm is a relative thing i'm talking about pain and suffering that is tangible and measurable then that is really when we have to speak up and as long as dr craig is not uh, uh, you know bringing about pain or discomfort to others in his beliefs what do i care what he believes he can believe in goats for all i care it doesn't matter you know he could pray to squirrels it doesn't matter But really, what's going on is he has a very profound faith, very passionate man, profound faith because of his religious experience. Faith, as they say, can move mountains. It's powerful. No, it can't. Heavy machinery and explosives moves mountains. And these are human inventions and human qualities. And obviously, there are going to be tensions if you have a certain type of faith in a particular god when certain things start to happen. And you're wondering why people are chipper in front of you and whatnot. If if she turned around to me and said that, I'd say, well, why can't I experience that? And, and Dr. Craig might say, well, you're just not re- you're not looking for the signs right. You're not looking for God or you're not looking for Jesus. So he's not going to speak to you or whatnot, right? I think Dr. Craig multiplies entities a little bit beyond necessity. I think he violates Occam's razor here because he attributes an awful lot of qualities to his particular... Uh, God of the universe, he strings what are called a lot of conjuncts together, and they look like this. The plausible disjunct, either the universe was intended or it was not intended. Dr. Craig believes that the universe was indeed intended, and he calls that intender God. And then the God is defined in many different ways, right? God has certain qualities and characteristics. He's omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent, all-powerful, all-loving, and so on and so forth. He gave us his only... Son, who died on the cross for our sins, and so on and so on and so on and so So many, many, many different strings of conjuncts that define his particular brand of God. And that's fine. Again, as long as his actions don't generate harm, what do a guy like me, what do I care? We sit down at a table together, we'll have dinner together, we'll, you know, enjoy our company together, we'll go to a movie, you know, I'll live my life as an atheist, he'll live his life as a Christian, but we will share common values. We will share values that we will both act on, acts of compassion and care and charity and love. And I think we can get along very well, provided we have this kind of tolerance without generating any harm. So what happens now is Dr. Craig has told us about this amazing experience that he's had where... Jesus Christ entered, enters his heart. I've heard this many, many different times. Some of you will attest to pretty much a very similar type of experience. Right? Karl Marx once said that religion is the opium of the masses. You may have heard it as the opiate of the masses, but he could not have known how correct he was in that regard. In my field of study, in trying to understand the neuroscience behind religious experience, when you think you're right about certain things, especially the big five, you get opioid receptors and akephalins. You get high. Jesus is a big buzz. But what is the difference between that and tripping at a Pink Floyd concert, right? I mean, they're very, very powerful and very, very similar. So I'll leave you with the thought that consider the possibility that if Jesus has somehow personally spoken to you, or God in any way has personally spoken to you, how do you know it's not just the fireworks going off in your head? Thank you.
0: For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org.